0: Hi and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration
1: Ministries, the refugee resettlement and migration ministry of the Episcopal Church. I'm Allison Duvall and I'm Kendall Martin. On Hometown, we bring you interviews, stories, and dialogue about forced displacement, welcoming communities, and how you can advocate for our newest neighbors. Thank you for listening. Today's episode features a recording from the May 20th webinar from Episcopal Migration Ministries and the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations, reflecting on the Geneva Convention, the state of global refugee trends and refugee policy today. As the 70th anniversary of the 1951 Geneva Convention relating to the status of refugees and the 60th anniversary of the 1961 Convention on the Reduction of Statelessness draws near, the world continues to experience some of the highest levels of displaced people in modern history. From Venezuela to South Sudan to Syria, the emergence of major refugee crises over the last 10 years has led to 100 million people fleeing their countries, with more than 79.5 million individuals displaced in 2019. Although the United Nations negotiated the 2018 compact on migration to address these challenges, Countries have adopted differing responses to increased refugee flows, with some offering refuge while others have limited refugee resettlement. The COVID-19 pandemic has reinforced these trends as countries shut travel in order to limit the virus's spread, leaving more vulnerable populations without access to safety. Today's recording features an update on the current status of refugees and refugee policy, as well as a panel discussion with experts from UNHCR the Migration Policy Institute, and the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at UC San Diego. We hope you enjoy today's show.
0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here today for reflecting on the Geneva Convention, the state of global refugee trends and refugee policy today. We're so glad that you're here. We'll open today's time together with a prayer. God of groups, you are within and beyond all of our borders our names for you, our words about you, our gatherings, our stories about you. We seek to praise, but sometimes we imprison. May we always be curious about what is beyond borders, going there gently, knowing that you have always been there. We ask this because we know that you are within and beyond all our groups and our stories. Amen. So today's agenda Will be to introduce today's hosts, Episcopal Migration Ministries and the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations. Then our presenter, Chris Ramon, will walk us through a bit of some framing discussing the 1951 Geneva Convention and protections for displaced persons worldwide. That will lead straight into a panel discussion during which you'll hear from three expert panelists. Thank you so much today for being with us, esteemed panelists. We'll conclude our time together with some follow-up and next steps and hope that you'll stay in touch with EMM and check out some of our upcoming webinars and other events to celebrate World Refugee Day throughout the month of June. So one of today's hosts is Episcopal Migration Ministries. We are the Episcopal Church's Refugee and Migration Ministry. You can learn about our work at our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org. On social media, we are EMM Refugees, and as I mentioned previously, you can find our video library at vimeo.com forward slash emmrefugees. We offer many resources, not only, of course, to our resettlement partners, but also to congregations across the country and the Episcopal Church, as well as our ecumenical and interfaith partners. So we encourage you to check out things like toolkits, liturgical resources, podcasts, book discussion guides, and much more. And finally, as I mentioned, we do invite you to join us in our celebration of World Refugee Day. World Refugee Day is every year on June 20th, and this year we have a whole month of events planned throughout June. Today is actually kind of our kickoff to our month-long celebration. So please do visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash World Refugee Day to see all the many ways that you can join us in celebration. And with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague, Chris, to introduce the Office of Government Relations.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Chris Ramone, and I'm a consultant with the Office of Government Relations with the Episcopal Church. Uh, The Office of Government Relations is the public advocacy arm for for the church, advocating on a whole host of different issues that are important to uh, the church and its congregations. Among this is immigration policy, where the church has been very active. Uh, both with dealing with a whole host of immigration issues, including refugee issues in support of EMM, um, and other immigration priorities as well. It is a very important part of the work that we do, uh, representing our voices uh, here in Washington, D.C., to both members of the administration as well as members of Congress. So if you have any other questions, obviously feel free to send them along to us, uh, to our hosts, and uh, we're always happy to connect with you and, and support you however we can. Today's event is going to be focusing on the 1951 Refugee Convention. And what happened is, in the wake of the flames of World War II, the United Nations adopted a convention. This convention provided humanitarian protection to individuals fleeing their country due to political persecution for specific reasons. The convention established a definition, someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin, owing to well-rounded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. And that's sort of the, the functioning and operational definition of refugees. Individuals who meet one or more of these categories can receive a set of protected rights under the convention, namely the right not to be returned to a country where they face persecution based on one of these five categories. It's a concept known as non-refoulement. 145 countries have signed the convention since 1951. Although the United States has not signed the convention, it did sign the 1967 protocol relating to the status of refugees. The protocol expanded the scope of the convention's protections by eliminating provisions that limited the convention's definition to individuals who became refugees due to events occurring in Europe before January 1st, 1951. Stated in another way, uh, the convention largely protected individuals who were fleeing or had dealt with uh, the aftermaths or the, the conditions in World War II, uh, who were largely in Europe. The protocol expanded this to all individuals worldwide after 1951. So there's a, there's a, when you think about refugees, you, you kind of hear folks mixing terms such as asylum seeker, refugee, and migrant or immigrant. And although it seems like these might be the same terms, uh, UNHCR in particular, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, has some pretty precise definitions for these three categories of individuals who all leave their country of origin. An asylum seeker are individuals who flee their country seeking international protection in countries with individualized procedures like the United States. An asylum seeker is an individual whose claim has not been decided on by the country. Now, A refugee is an asylum seeker who meets the criteria of the definition of a refugee, depending on the venue where they seek protection, such as an individual country like the United States. As noted before, refugees receive several rights and protections, including not being returned to their country, where they may face persecution, like I was saying, the concept of non-refoulement. Now, where it gets interesting is migrants people can leave their countries for many reasons and an immigrant can leave for multiple reasons related to uh, e- you know seeking new economic opportunities abroad family reunification they may be students but they do not fall if they don't meet one of the, the criteria for the refugee for re- refugee status from the definition that we set um, they're not going to be entitled to those benefits even if they are fleeing pretty difficult circumstances. So that's, that's I think that's where the, some of the complexities come in is that sometimes you might see an individual who might be fleeing a very difficult situation, but they're not gonna be uh, eligible for refugee protection because they don't fall under those five categories. Without framing, we're not gonna go to our panel discussion to kind of explore a lot of what's happening with refugee, to, to see what's happening with refugee policy and refugee trends. Our esteemed panel, we have some great panelists today. Our first panelist is David Scott Fitzgerald, who is the Theodore E. Gildred Chair in US-Mexican Relations and a professor of sociology and co-director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at uh, the University of California, San Diego. His research analyzes policies regulating immigration and refugees and centuries of origin, transit and destination, as well as the experiences of people on the move. His most recent book, Uh, which just won the American Sociological Association's International Migration Section Best Book Award and the International Studies Association of Human Rights uh, is Refuge Beyond Reach, How Rich Democracies Repel Asylum Seekers. Uh, So he's going to be giving us a lot of perspectives on how countries try to restrict access to asylum seekers and people who are trying to seek refugee status. Following up is Susan Fratsky. Uh, is a Senior Policy Analyst with the Migration Policy Institute's International Program, uh, where she primarily works on forced migration, asylum and resettlement policy. Ms. Fratsky has previously worked for the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration, and with Adult Literacy programs serving immigrants and refugee students in Minnesota. And finally, our third uh, panelist will be uh, Jana Mason, who is the Senior External Relations Advisor at the Washington DC office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. She represents the agency's interests with the US government, particularly with the State Department and Congress and with non-governmental organizations. Prior to joining UNHCR, Jana was the Director of Government Relations and Advocacy at the International Rescue Committee. And she was also with the U.S. Commission for Refugee, U.S. Commission for Refugees for eleven years, where she served as a policy analyst for Asia, uh, Pacific, for the Asian Pacific uh, region, and advocated for refugee protection and assistance. We're we're going to now start off this panel. the The first round of questions is basically looking at what's happening worldwide with the state of refugee uh, trends. And Susan, we're going to start it off with you. Can you provide an overview of the important trends about the current set of humanitarian crises that have displaced people worldwide?
3: Sure. Um, Thanks, Chris. And thanks so much um, for inviting me to participate in the discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Um, So I think one of the first things to keep in mind when we're thinking about the the state of displacement globally is that a lot of the focus over the last decade has really been on Syria and the situation in Syria. It's what's been in the news. There have been really dramatic images of people uh, moving, trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea into Europe. Uh, And it's a region of the world, of course that it tends to attract a lot of our attention for geopolitical reasons, um, the Middle East, and then the effects that it's had on Europe. Um, But displacement is really a global phenomenon, and that's very much um, true of the displacement and the crises that we see today. Uh, There are more than 20 million uh, individuals who are displaced as refugees worldwide. Um, Six million of those are Syrians, as of the the latest um, numbers from UNHCR. But there are also several million Refugees who have fled conflicts in Afghanistan, in South Sudan, in Myanmar, uh, as well as a number of smaller refugee situations uh, across the world um, that don't really tend to make the the headlines that we see here in the U.S. as much. Uh, so this is really a, a global phenomenon that has touched um, really every region of the world. Um, in addition to those twenty million refugees and the situations in Syria and Afghanistan and elsewhere, there are also four million Venezuelans who have left their countries. And as you said, Chris, uh, the the reasons that people move are complex and don't always um, fit into clean categories. Um, But if we think of of forced displacement as a broader phenomenon, um, there are uh, crises and situations like what we've seen in um, Venezuela and the the political situation there uh, and resulting um, turmoil, political turmoil, domestic turmoil, and economic crises that also force people to leave. Their homes. Um, it's important to understand, though, that uh, the displacement and the crises that that we've seen over the last few years, um, while have they've really you know captured our attention here in the U.S., um, it, it's not a new phenomenon. Displacement and large scale um, displacement isn't something that's you know just really. Um, it, really happened or or become an issue in the last few years many of the conflicts that have generated displacement um large-scale displacement like afghanistan or myanmar um have really been going on for several decades Uh, afghanistan of course you know the um the, the US uh, invasion there um, was now you know, several decades in the past, but refugees who fled Afghanistan have actually been displaced um, even prior to that. Uh, the conflict um, in Myanmar and sort of political oppression and, and inter ethnic group conflict in uh, Myanmar, uh, refugees who fled that situation have also been displaced um, for several decades now. Um, unfortunately what that means is that the experience of um of the the syrian refugees uh is really not a a new phenomenon the um the conflict, of course, that you know generated displacement from Syria now is uh, ten years old, um, and the the six million Syrians who have been displaced by it are really, you know, in many cases not any closer to having a resolution to their displacement. Um, and unfortunately, that's really been the the situation of um, many refugees. Across the world, um, the the final point I would just note that I think is important in terms of framing our conversation um, is you know as you said Chris the the drivers and the reasons why people are fleeing are really complex um, and in some cases they do fit neatly into these categories that we have and that we've built around, you know, the, the refugee convention and that our laws, um, you know, in many cases really reflect. Um, but in many cases, they also don't, you know, fit quite as neatly into those categories. The Venezuelans are, you know, one of the um, the displacement situations that exemplifies that, you know, people who are forced to leave their homes but um, don't necessarily, you know, match as, as closely into those categories. And one of the questions that, you know, we have to sort of face is how do we address Address those types of of mixed um, mixed situations, um, and I think that's you know, one of the the sort of important things to to keep in mind in our conversation today.
2: Yeah, um, David. You know, picking up talking about what's happened in the past um, historically. How does the current set of humanitarian crises differ from earlier periods in the twentieth? in the 20th century, is, is there, has there been a major difference from what we've seen in the past?
4: Yeah, well, notwithstanding what you might read in the newspaper, the earlier crises were even bigger than, than the contemporary situation, where there are an estimated 79.5 million people that were displaced. Um, if you go back to World War II, there were an estimated 175 million people displaced, We talk a lot about those who were displaced in Europe, most of them were displaced in in Asia. Um, So more than twice as many as the current numbers of displacement. And now we're in a planet with a much larger population. So if you look at the percentage of the population that's displaced today, it's just under 1%. In World War II, it was eight and a half times higher. Um, and that was also at a time when the current institutions and laws around managing displacement were not nearly as developed. So one of the historical lessons, I think that's quite relevant today is that despite the mass suffering of, of refugees and other displaced people around the world today, the world has seen worse than it's come up with policies uh, to try to manage these situations and to improve human lives. Um, we We know how to manage displacement. The question is, Is there a political will uh, to do that? I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding in the media about um, what is new with uh, contemporary migration flows. There's a lot more continuity than there is new types of flows. Um, Susan mentioned the idea of mixed flows. And and certainly there are many people who have a mix of motivations for for why they move. fleeing persecution, violence. People also are often concerned about being able to lead a dignified life, uh, which questions of uh, you know economic uh, livelihood come into that discussion. But that, that idea of mixed flows in practice, it's actually as old as the refugee phenomenon itself. There, there's nothing new about that. The refugees in the 1930s or even much earlier were also making similar kinds of calculations as, as people today. What I think is new under the sun is that we now live in a world of migration control and border control that includes controls over refugees. And that's a big shift. It's, it's sometimes surprising to go back into history and realize that in most major countries of immigration, including the US, until World War I, at least for Europeans, it was an extremely open immigration policy, extremely easy to, to immigrate to this country. Again, if you were European, we could talk about some exceptions. But that means that there was no special refugee policy because it was so open. So there are a lot of groups who today we would consider refugees who then simply arrived as immigrants. Say Russian Jews fleeing pogroms in the the late 19th, early 20th centuries. They just came as immigrants because there was no uh, statutory refugee category. Today, we live in a system where there is migration control. There is border control. Um, But we have narrow exceptions that have been deliberately carved out to allow for the possibility of asylum. And the reason we have those is because there were earlier times in U.S. history when there was both strict migration control and no refugee carve out. And the result of that was catastrophic. The result of that was the Holocaust um, with the destruction of European Jewry as most countries around the world, including uh, the major countries in the Americas, the liberal European states did not open their doors to Jews fleeing fascism in Europe, with some narrow exceptions. So that's why today we have this this system. And the memory of the Holocaust is is growing faint as the survivors uh, die off, but it really is, that and the Cold War really are the two crucibles in which our contemporary system was created. Thank you, um,
2: and we'll we'll pick up on this this policy discussion about restrictions in a, in the next round of questions. Uh, Jana, I'm going to bring you in. Um, how has UNHCR's role evolved across the sets of crises that Susan and David covered in the responses?
5: Sure. Thank you, Chris, um, and thank you for inviting UNHCR to participate in this event. We're always happy to see World Refugee Day um, acknowledged and and celebrated every year. We, of course. We don't want to celebrate the fact that there are refugees. We we wish we lived in a world where um, forcible displacement didn't didn't need to occur, but we do use the day to celebrate the resilience of refugees and their achievements and what they bring to their new communities, including places like the U.S. So so thanks for giving giving us the opportunity for this discussion. Uh, a couple of the other speakers, um, certainly both Susan and David and you yourself and your and your terrific opening, have talked about a little bit about how UNHCR's role has developed. I mean, the most um, clear way is that when we started, because we were, as you discussed, limited to finding solutions for people uprooted, specifically as a result of World War II and living in Europe you know we our mandate was established a year before the convention in 1950 then in 1951 you had the convention so at that point we were basically a group of lawyers in the room in Geneva trying to find legal solutions to people uprooted by World War II and the idea was after we did that we would wind down we would cease to exist so our mandate, our authority, only existed initially for a very brief period, a few years. Um, Unfortunately, even though we were successful in finding solutions for people uprooted in Europe as a result of those developments, unfortunately, right around that time, we started seeing refugee um, situations erupting in other parts of the world. The Hungarian exodus was one of the first clear examples of that, but it wasn't too long before it expanded into Asia. You know, you had the situation with with, um, Bangladesh, you had Northern Africa, the Western Sahara situation, then you had situations of decolonization in Africa. Um, Around this time, as you mentioned, a protocol was adopted by the international community in 67, getting rid of the geographic and time limitations of the Refugee Convention. So now, refugee status applied to anybody, anywhere at any time, which was good because on the heels of that, you had say in the 70s, for example, uh, the Vietnam War situation that we're all very familiar with. In the 80s, you had Central America. Of course, today we have Central America as well. So maybe that was the first uh, Central American refugee crisis, if you will. Um, Not long after that, late 70s, early 80s, you had Afghanistan. Um, And our mandate during this time kept getting extended a few years at a time, I think, under this naive hope that eventually all the existing refugee situations would be resolved. There wouldn't be any new ones or maybe the international community would find a better way to address forced displacement without having to have people living as refugees. That didn't happen. And then before you know it, we had the Yugoslavia situation um, everybody remembers, um, you know, the breakup of the Balkans, and then you had Rwanda in 1994. Eventually, our mandate was extended. Uh, the wording they used, the General Assembly, was "until the refugee problem is solved." And I would love to say that's somewhere on the radar, um, but since since that wording was was granted with our with our indefinite mandate, we've had Syria, which Susan discussed, we've had Iraq. We've had the right now the major crisis in the Sahel, many parts of Africa. More recently or or more closer to home, we have Venezuela. We have the northern uh, Central American countries. So unfortunately, um, our work continues so that today, instead of being just a small group of lawyers in Geneva, we work in over 130 countries. We have a staff of over 17,000. And that is needed because the numbers, as, as you and others have mentioned, are now roughly 80 million people forcibly displaced around the world. On June 20th or right before June 20th, we'll come up with new statistics. We come up with new global trends, as we call them, um, every year around World Refugee Day. But the numbers we're still using right now show, you know, Susan mentioned 20 million refugees. If you include Palestinians who are very much in the news right now but are not under my agency's mandate because there's a separate UN agency UNRWA, responsible for the Palestinians. But if you include them and you include Venezuelans who, for various political reasons, have been kind of given their own category, but a large number, if not most of them, would be considered refugees. So altogether, it's closer to 30 million people, refugees, who have crossed an international border, which, as you mentioned, is part of the definition. Um, Many more of those, though, are internally displaced within the borders of their own countries. And that's one of the ways that the work of my agency has changed significantly over the years. Over 45 million are people who have fled their homes, but not their countries. They fled for the same persecution reasons on on the basis of one of those five categories you've mentioned, but for one or another reason, they haven't crossed or haven't been allowed to cross an international border. So they're displaced internally. We call them IDPs. Unlike refugees, there's no convention or lead agency to protect and assist IDPs, but um, throughout the decades, the UN, together with our NGO partners, have come up with uh, an approach. It's known as the Cluster of Approach, which is clusters are basically groups of UN agencies and NGOs that have divided up the various sectors for assisting and protecting IDPs. And basically we do the same things we do for IDPs that we do for refugees, except you're, they're internally in their home country. There are a lot of political and legal issues that arise, of course, issues of sovereignty. Um, but the biggest issue, in Syria is a good example, is that when you're talking about IDPs, you're often talking about war zones, conflict zones. Um, so getting access to people, um, the safety and security of those in displaced people and of our staff and of our partners um, is a major issue. Um, but we're at 80 million because the international community, unfortunately, hasn't found a way to prevent conflict before it starts or to resolve it in anything like a timely manner. Um, so today you have the largest level of forced displacement on record. And I will say, roughly three quarters, at least of refugees are in what we call a protracted situation, which is where you have at least 25,000 people who have been uprooted for five or more years in one place. Um, the reality is you have some places like Somalia, Afghanistan, Burma, where people have been in refugee status for decades, decades. The, the average length is, is 19 years. Um, but some of that is even short compared to uh, you know, Afghan kids who have grown up in Pakistan never having known Afghanistan. You know, they're the grandchildren of the people who who originally fled. Um, We also, one of the biggest trends we've seen is that roughly 60% of refugees now and two-thirds of internally displaced are not in camps. Camps are still, you know, viewed as where refugees and IDPs live, and many of them still do, but most of them are now in urban or semi-urban areas, in in cities, in towns, not in confined camps, which in one sense is good, um, but there are a lot of logistical and protection issues that arise when refugees, um, you know, are in urban areas. Sometimes they're subject to arrest, deportation, accessing assistance is sometimes difficult, but we and our partners do the full range of assistance for urban refugees and urban IDPs um, that we do for those who are in camps. So that's a bit of the the trends that we've seen. I was really happy to hear David and others mention mixed flows because that's a very real situation. For example, here in this hemisphere and other places, where um, it's become more important, even though it isn't a new phenomenon, like David said, because these issues sometimes become very political. We've had to be very smart, you know, more smart in how we engage and talking about and assisting people in mixed movements, so that we can identify those who do need um, refugee protection. Thanks.
2: Great. So we've now got a sense of the scope of the, of displacement worldwide. Let's talk about the responses from states, um, regional blocks of the European union, um, uh, and, and UNHCR. David, I, I, I alluded to this when I was introducing you, um, you know that you've kind of done a lot of research in terms of how states. I mean, you wrote the book "Refuge Beyond Reach." the The title is essentially that there are ways that the states states um, have sought to kind of restrict uh, offering humanitarian protection to individuals. Can you just dive into that a little bit? Give us a sense of how that's happening.
4: Right. So it's uh, a long, pretty grim history, and the the basic contours are that the the richest countries in the world are paying poor and middle income countries to host the vast majority of the world's refugees. about 85 percent of the world's refugees are in those poor or middle income uh, countries. And very few of them um, are ever going to be resettled. I think right now it's about half of one percent of the world's refugees are resettled in a given year, but it's never reached in modern times even one percent of the world's refugee uh, population being resettled. So, It's an important pathway, but it's a very, very tiny minority of those refugees who will be resettled. Well, what if you wanted to to seek asylum? Um, Could you go to an embassy, say, and ask for asylum? Well, some countries have policies that allow that, um, and you can think of some prominent examples of like Julian Assange, but many countries don't allow that at all and nowhere is that business as usual. It's, it's actually the exception that proves the rule. So for a regular person who is being persecuted, that is not an option. So that means that for 99% of the world's uh, refugees, if they were to seek asylum in a, a rich democracy in the global north, they would have to travel independently and, and reach a territory either at the border or or inside the territory of that country in order to be able to ask for asylum. So what Governments in uh, Europe and Australia and Canada and the US do is to systematically make it extremely difficult for someone to reach their territories in order to be able to make an asylum claim. And they use a lot of different techniques that try to push their borders, uh, sometimes thousands of of miles away uh, from the actual territorial borders of, say, the US. Um, One of the most important things that they do is through visa policy. If you look at the world's nationalities, the nationalities that have the most difficulty getting a visa uh, and and who have to have a visa as a condition of travel to most countries, those are the same nationalities that are the, the biggest refugee nationalities. So, for example, if you're from Afghanistan, if you're from Sudan or South Sudan or Syria, there are only a handful of countries in the world where you can travel without a visa. And all the rest, you have to have a visa, and those deliberately are not given out because governments don't want um, asylum seekers arriving by air. Governments also try to take their neighbors and turn them into buffer states. So we see this right now. I live in San Diego. I'm talking to you from San Diego. Since the early 1980s, the example of Central American uh, civil wars uh, was mentioned in addition to the contemporary situation. But since the 1980s, the U.S. government has used Mexico as a buffer state to try to bottle up uh, Central Americans uh, in Mexico or to prevent them from even reaching uh, Mexico in some cases. There are some new techniques for doing that um, that were developed under the Trump administration, but that basic logic goes back decades. And we can see the European Union doing something similar with Morocco uh, which has served as a buffer state. And just in the last few days, uh, for some complicated reasons that we could discuss, the Moroccan government has withdrawn their their border guards that prevent exit from Morocco into the Spanish enclaves of uh, Ceuta and, and Malia. And as a result, people are now swimming around uh, those, uh, those border fences into those enclaves, being beaten back by Spanish border guards. It's an example of what happens when a buffer state, at least temporarily, refuses to play that role. Indonesia is a buffer state for Australia. So there are many, many different techniques that we could talk about, but they all share this basic logic, which is to make it almost impossible for someone to travel legally to ask for asylum. That means that many asylum seekers are traveling without papers, they're traveling with people smugglers, they're traveling without a visa. And the UN Refugee Convention explicitly has a provision that when someone asks for asylum, um, their claim should be processed the same way. It should not be held against them just because they traveled illegally, because that's always been part of asylum seeking for many people. There there were not options to to travel legally, so therefore people avail themselves of people smugglers, for example. But it's important politically because when asylum seekers arrive without a visa, it invokes in the public sphere all of the fears about unauthorized migration. Um, And and so the political effect of making people who really are refugees, according to the convention, if they just get their case heard, um, travel illegally is to make the whole asylum system appears suspect in the eyes of many people in the public. So the, the, the political effects of, of these kind of policies are, are quite pernicious from the point of view of trying to maximize protection of people in persecution.
2: Thank you for that. Um, Susan, what so David talked about how states have sort of been trying to you know restrict humanitarian access what is the other side of the coin for that in the way that states have been innovative in trying to expand protection? Um, you know, are are there any instances where we're sort of seeing a different approach, uh, to these challenges?
3: Thanks, Chris. I think, um, not to to complain but i think you gave me the the harder question. um i tend to be a, a bit more sort of negative in my in my view as well about the situation but i'll i'll try to um, have a, a more positive outlook. um i think there have been some innovations that we can um that we can point to. uh as david said uh one of the challenges in opening and creating protection space is the you know, like the, the term he used the sort of pernicious political effects of asylum as a policy and how it can sometimes be difficult for governments to maintain open asylum space um, in a situation where publics don't always understand what's happening at a border. They don't understand all of the the laws and the history and the development behind the principles of asylum and principles of protection and um, can become sort of alarmed and reactive to scenes of chaos or um, sort of feelings of of chaos at at national borders. Um, And so one of the, the questions I think and the challenges that we, we face is how to um, you know, how countries can maintain support for the principles of protection and um, you know, help to sort of uh, resolve some of the the political challenges that um, that situations sometimes create. Um, I think there have been some examples of states um, being able to do that or, or making progress towards doing that, actually in this hemisphere. Um, one of the you know interesting uh, situations um, to watch has been how states have responded to um, the Venezuela situation um, one of the the responses that you know has been in, in the news the last few months is um, what the Colombian government has done so they just moved to grant a 10-year residence residency permit to nearly um, two million Venezuelans who are on their territory um, sometimes you know, often without uh, apologies for the sirens in the background um, but you know without Necessarily um, having had legal status um, previously, and in many cases, in most cases, not having necessarily entered a, a formal asylum system. Um, it's uh, been something that they've also been fairly successful in maintaining and generating public support for, um, which I think is also um, quite notable. And they've done it through, um, you know, really framing the situation in very practical terms. You know, these are people who have been forced to flee their country, they're in our country already. Um, and there will be, uh, th- there isn't really a, a purpose in, you know, keeping them sort of outside the legal system, not allowing them to, to work and, and you know, access services and these sorts of things. And, and framing it in those sort of pragmatic terms has actually um, worked fairly well for them. Um, I think it's worth noting that there are some you know, trade-offs between you know, using these sorts of pragmatic approaches and actually having people you know, formally access um, refugee status, uh, and that's something that will have to be sort of dealt with um, you know in the longer term. There's you know, questions around the types of protection that is you know granted sort of legally from Rifle uh, you know around the um, the regularization status and these sorts of things But the the important thing is that um, it's been a status that's been extended to you know a large number of people without a lot of con- conditions and enabled them to really um, you know access legal status and protection. Um, there's also been, I think, some interesting strategies that we've seen around, you know, creative efforts to try to counter some of the feelings of chaos and crisis that um, can give rise to um, to negative views or concerns about what happens in in border areas. Um, there are some strategies that have been known uh, come to be known as interiorization strategies that have been used in Brazil and in Mexico to uh, actually uh, when someone crosses a border and, and and is in a situation where they're seeking or need of protection um actually um uh the uh Uh, protection agencies, um, relocating that that person and connecting them with um, employment opportunities and housing elsewhere in the country to try to ensure that someone has um, access to uh, a safe place to stay, potentially able to to enter work, um, and trying to sort of mitigate pressure again on border communities that can have a a tendency to, in some cases, generate some of that uh, backlash or sort of feeling that, that situations are out of control. Um, the other place where I think there's been a lot of um, you know, creativity is around um, finding new uh creating new pathways to access protection um outside of the um the the confines of the the traditional asylum system that you know that David mentioned and and trying to sort of open up um alternative ways to travel that don't force people to to undertake um dangerous journeys um we've seen the growth for example of resettlement programs in many different countries um you know uh, Jenna will, will note from the, the UNHCR perspective, I'm sure that you know resettlement numbers in the past several years have been historically low uh, because the U.S. has cut, uh, had previously cut the resettlement program to historically low, you know, low numbers for the U.S. Um, That's been offset slightly, you know, not to a large extent, but slightly by the growth of resettlement programs in Europe. Um, Japan just doubled its resettlement quota. Uh, There's a new resettlement program that's been opened up in Argentina. Uh, And so, you know, while those numbers aren't, um, haven't been enough to compensate with what happened to the U.S. program, there is, energy and interest around resettlement um, that is growing in a number of different countries. And um, as as David said, resettlement uh, is a a pathway for the the most vulnerable. Um, It's an opportunity um, that uh, UNHCR uses to connect people um, who are in vulnerable situations and allows them to move uh, in safety to a third country. And so it provides a a solution for those populations. Some of these resettlement programs have drawn on sort of new models. There's a community sponsorship model that's emerged in a lot of different countries that tries to involve communities more in welcoming refugees and connecting them to the resettlement process, um, which I think has some promise for, again, helping to allow people to connect more with the protection protection, architecture and protection system and understand what it's about and, and sort of see the conditions and, and meet uh, people one-on-one and, and help to sort of broaden the community of actors who are engaged in in protection. Um, and finally, I would just say that there's also been an effort to try to um, open more pathways for mobility through education, study programs, labor pathways, um, family reunification programs for, um, you know, for people who have been displaced that doesn't sort of restrict this only to um, you know the, the restrictions mobility only to you know, resettlement and asylum. Um, I would just, you know, f- as a final note for that, say that. Um, there are some problematic aspects to this, which is that you know, resettlement, um, complementary pathways, are, and, and the growth in this space is coming on top of um, you know, additional border restrictions that David outlined. And there's some concerns around sort of the trade-off that's being created around um, more restrictive regimes uh, and you know, states sort of you know, picking and choosing who gets access to protection. But I think that doesn't you know, negate the value of these pathways for the, the people, the additional people who've been able to benefit for them.
2: So, Jenna, we're going to kick it back over to you. Um, Right now, uh, how has UNHCR and the broader UN system responded to, you know, what's happening right now in the world, Um, given sort of the context that Susan and David sort of fleshed out for how states have been responding?
5: Sure. Well, one thing that if I didn't make clear before, I'd like to emphasize, which is that UNHCR doesn't work alone. Anytime I talk about what we do, um, it's we with partners. And in recent years, we have worked very hard to expand our partnerships. Our partners are other governments, other UN agencies, UNICEF, the World Food Program, um, uh, International Labor Organization, particularly the humanitarian disaster-related ones like, like UNICEF and WFP, others as well also NGOs, we have roughly 1,000 NGO partners around the world. And I I will say this past year with the COVID response, where a lot of the international agencies had movement limits and restrictions, we really relied heavily on local partners, including faith-based organizations, which are not only key resettlement partners, but very strong um, assistance partners around the world as well. And I think even going forward post-COVID, we'll be expanding a lot of those. You know, our core mandate, UNHCR, is protection. Like I said earlier, it's legal protection, making sure refugees are not sent back across borders back to their home country where they could be persecuted, making sure the IDPs are protected as well. And that's what, you know, differentiates that from some other agencies because we're given that mandate in the Refugee Convention. We are named as you know having a lead on on refugee response and and asking governments to cooperate with us on protecting and assisting ref- assisting refugees but because refugee situations go on for so long we've morphed into a major assistance agency you know whether it, whether it's camp or urban based cities rural areas and that's where we work with partners. We also have to do a lot of advocacy, trying to get governments to take the responsibilities more seriously, trying to avoid the tendency to restrict opportunities for asylum, which is what something we've seen going on for decades. So we try to get more governments to become a party to the convention, to take on the role of interviewing and determining refugees, where some countries do that themselves, like the US and most Western countries have an asylum system for people who arrive there. In other parts of the world, my agency does what we call RSD, refugee status determination. We, we are allowed by governments to do those interviews, make those determinations. But you know, it's not always what a government does or what a government says in terms of whether it signs on to the convention. It's actually what you see on the ground. There are some countries who are not parties to the convention, um, claim they don't recognize the term refugee, but for decades, you know, like Thailand, for decades they've been hosting refugees either on one border with Cambodians, Vietnamese, or for the past few decades, Burmese on on the other side of of the country. There are countries who have long been parties to the Refugee Convention and leaders in the response who often, um, you know, commit réformement either in small ways or or large ways. So we're always doing advocacy to try to prevent that from happening. I will say that probably the biggest development in recent years in terms of how we and our partners address refugee situations, and Susan alluded to a lot of this, but it's something that started, I would call it a a new approach, that started roughly in in 2016. You You may recall that in 2015, for a whole host of reasons, we saw a lot of people, largely Syrians but others, who took to boats, if you can call them boats? They were very unseaworthy vessels. Many people drowned, but took to to boats to cross the Mediterranean to try to get to Europe. This is what we would call a secondary movement. Many of these were, like I said, Syrians who had been sitting in the host countries like Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon. The Syrian conflict had been going on for several years, no end in sight. Um, food rations had to be cut for a limited time. They, people saw no hope for their kids. And smugglers took advantage of this. The seas were cooperating. And they said, hey, try to get over to Europe. This was a small percentage of the Syrians. Most of them didn't have the money or the means to do this. They stayed and still had stayed in the neighboring host countries. But some did this. The media had a field day. Europe, unfortunately, rather than reacting in a, in a unified way, countries were doing their own thing. Some built walls, some closed borders. Um, Germany was very, um, you know, humanitarian in its response and said, "You can come here." So, but still, it was viewed as kind of a, a messy situation, not unlike what you may see at the southern border in the U.S. Not to be unexpected, but still, you know, countries don't don't like it when. Um, arrivals are large in number and and not coordinated like refugee settlement is is coordinated. So what happened is the following year in 2016, in the fall there were two big summits in New York. One was run by the UN. One was run by the, then uh, the US administration, the Obama administration at the time. And as a result, um, particularly coming out of the UN summit, there was a document um, adopted or approved by almost all the UN member states called the Global Compact on Refugees. There's also a Global Compact on Migration, which is a separate document, but this is one on refugees. It's not a legally binding document unlike the Refugee Convention, but it does restate an approach that is seeking to bring some order and predictability and and better, better methods of responding to global forced displacement. And one of the key goals of that document is to give more assistance to what we would call the frontline refugee hosting states. Despite what I just said about the Mediterranean in 2015, despite all the press that you see about the U.S. southern border, most refugees around the world are not trying to get to Europe or to the U.S. The vast majority of refugees, unlike migrants, cross one border and stay there for years or decades, close to home, hoping to go back at some time. That's why the vast majority of the world's 80 million forcibly uprooted, almost 30 million refugees are in neighboring host countries. So the vast majority of Syrians, as I mentioned, are in the Syria region, in Turkey, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in northern Iraq, elsewhere as well. Much, Many smaller numbers have gone elsewhere. So we need to give support to these countries who are neighboring host countries. And it's not just in the Syria region, it's it's Colombia for Venezuela. Colombia is the largest producer of internal displacement. They're hosting Venezuelans. Um, Venezuelans have long hosted Colombians. You have Ecuador, you have Kenya, Uganda. Um, Ethiopia is a host as well as a producer of refugees. Most of the na- of the host countries in the world are developing countries with their own economic and political issues, sometimes their own security issues they are doing the lion's share of of the hosting and assisting for refugees. So they need our support. So in addition to just humanitarian aid to help refugees, they need more help if they're going to keep their borders open to assist their own populations. They need more, um, not only low-interest loans, but they need grants. They need World Bank investment. They need private sector investment so that they can improve the standard of living for their own population. And in turn, they'll be more willing to keep their borders open. And what we're asking of them, and Susan alluded to this, is to allow refugees in their territory to work allow the kids to go to school, allow them freedom of movement around the country so that they can use their time in exile to improve their skills, improve their education so that if the, if and when they go back home, which is what refugees want, they can help rebuild their countries and improve the situation there. If they are among one of the less than one half of 1% who get resettled in another country because they're vulnerable. They'll be able to contribute to their host host communities like they do in the U.S. because they have skills and education. If they stay temporarily for the long-term in the country or the region where they're taking refuge temporarily, they can contribute um, to that country as well. So, that, so the biggest part of the GCR is more support to the neighboring host countries. We also want to build self-reliance of refugees through education and work that I just mentioned, but also th- through what Susan mentioned, complementary pathways. If refugees can't go home yet and there's no not enough resettlement slots for them, could they get a scholarship to study somewhere else? Could uh, an adult get a work visa? and and go work for a while and then return to the host country or return home. They'd still be considered refugees legally if they don't have a long-term solution or a new nationality, but they would be using their time and their talents and there'd be less of a burden on the host countries. And finally, we need to do more to address the, the root causes of refugee flight of internal displacement. You see this a lot in the discussions about the Central America region. At the same time, everybody's concerned with what's happening at the southern border and for people who are allowed into the U.S., what's happening in the northern Mexico side. You know, the vice president has been tasked with addressing the bigger picture issues in Central America and the region. The root causes, um, violence, poverty, um, many forms of hardship, but particularly violence and insecurity that cause people to flee so that they have to make this dangerous journey um, to the U.S. or or elsewhere in the region. So more focus on root causes ultimately is gonna be key. It's not gonna be easy. People talk about root, root causes all the time, but it has to be part of any solution. Thanks.
2: Great. Um, so we are almost at time. Um, th- just very, very quickly, 30 seconds. Um, Susan, what are your three, just if you could summarize it. Three, what are some lessons learned for the proactive responses that we can apply to future crises? David, um, your three rec- you know three quick recommendations from how you think states and groups can learn from the restrictions policies? Um, Jenna, I you know we had a questionnaire set up, but um, we got a great question from somebody at the migration policy group. Um, what are the most important policy changes that the Biden and Harris administration would have to make for the U.S. to comply with the standards set in the Geneva Convention? So we've got maybe two minutes. So just quick rapid fire uh, r- last round. Susan, go first.
3: Great. Hey. Uh, so, just very briefly, I would say one of the, the lessons learned from from my perspective uh, over the last few years is the importance of um, really trying to build responses from the ground up and ensuring that policy responses are um, locally driven and adhere to international standards and norms, but um, really, you know, make an effort to to build. Um, the, the buy-in uh, of local communities um, and try to sort of you know shape their views of protection situations alongside with um, with the response and, and ensure that there's um, sort of local support and, and national support for for policy responses um, and, and as I said before I think the, the Columbia example is, is an interesting um, example of having um, having done that. Um, the other thing I would say is that I think we are in a, a good situation or a good situation but an interesting situation, um, now, with the development of things like complementary pathways, to try to um, bring a bit more uh, opportunities for agencies for refugees themselves, um, in terms of uh, you know, finding and shaping their own responses to their own displacement. Um, as David said in his comments, the, uh, the opportunities for refugees to make their own sort of choices about you know, where they go and how they resolve their displacement situations tend to be very limited in part by um, visa policies, restrictions that states put in place. Um, you have two choices, I, I often your know, dangerous asylum journey or resettlement, um, which is available to very, very few people and has you know, sort of strict criteria placed on it by states. Um, so I think the the move to try to remove some of the barriers that prevent refugees from accessing accessing existing mobility um, pathways and also to open up, you know, as Jana said, opportunities locally for people to, um, to work and, and begin to resume their lives and sort of exercise some some decision making and some choice over, you know, sort of what their future looks like is really important. Um, and finally, I would say, and, and Jana, uh, Jana um, mentioned this as well, but um, the, you know, greater um opportunities for refugee-led responses. And that's something that we've um, really seen emerge in, in the aftermath of COVID. Um, you have more reliance on refugee-led organizations. Um, but it, it'll be uh, important to see that also translate into um, you know, how decisions are being made as well.
4: David? I'll just make three quick points about what we've learned from these past examples. One is that for a set of countries that are often looked at as as models around the world, When it comes to these policies like the U.S., Canada, Australia, we see that those policies have reverberations around the world. So sometimes that works in a pro-refugee direction when it comes to resettlement programs. Sometimes it's the opposite. When it comes to these restrictive policies, other governments are paying attention. They then justify their more restrictive policies by pointing to the restrictive policies in other countries and Right now, there's a a real need to to rebuild uh, a a more constructive U.S. role in the refugee program because it's not just a matter of what the U.S. is doing uh, regarding people who are coming to the U.S. There are these knock-on effects around the world. The second issue is that when policies are so incredibly restrictive, the stakes are very serious. History is full of horrific examples of people being returned into the hands of their persecutors of being besieged and never allowed to leave in the first place to become refugees, of people who are um, not able to access legal pathways, pathways, and so they take very dangerous illegal pathways, such as the one that Jenna just mentioned um, across the Mediterranean. It is guaranteed that if there are few legal pathways, that there will be more unauthorized uh, movement. That, that is a, a basic fact about international mobility that affects uh, refugees as much as, as anyone else. And, you know, our, our notion of refugee, that term refugee uh, was first applied to French Protestants, the Huguenots, or Huguenots if you prefer, uh, fleeing to places like England for persecution in France. That's where that word refugee entered the English language. The first refugees were forced to travel illegally. They had to break French exit controls and travel illegally to leave France. So uh, it's, it's really important to disentangle the question of legality from the question of uh, an ethical obligation, uh, perhaps in this group, uh, a theological obligation to provide sanctuary to those who are fleeing persecution. And
2: Jana, uh, like I said, um, what are some important policy changes that the Biden-Harris administration can do to sort of comply with the Geneva Convention?
5: Sure. Well, first of all, I mean, it has to be said the U.S. has long been um, a leader, if not the leader in global refugee protection and assistance, not only as um, by being the largest donor by far, not only to UNHCR, but to humanitarian organizations. And that that has continued even um, in the last few years, also for for many decades, having by far the largest refugee resettlement program for people, as we said, identified overseas and admitted Legally to the US. Now, in the last few years, um, that number did go down dramatically. Um, We're very pleased to see that the refugee mission ceiling for the rest of this year, and particularly for the new fiscal year starting in October, will be raised. We're very happy about that, hoping um, the US will return to having a robust. Um, refugee admissions program. But that is, as as important as it is, it's a discretionary program. I mean, you mentioned obligations under the Refugee Convention, which gets us to the U.S. asylum system and related statuses for people who arrive at the U.S. border seeking protection. And so the biggest change, in fact, um, just uh, just today, we released a press statement calling on the U.S. to um, eliminate its, what we call Title 42, which is the public health-related, COVID-related restrictions that were put in place at the southern border, um, specifically to deal with the the pandemic. We feel that um, these restrictions are not um, needed, um, that they're not in compliance with international law, but that public health can be safeguarded at the same time access to asylum, um, is provided. So we're optimistic and hopeful that the COVID-related restrictions will be relaxed very soon, and people will be able to have full access to the U.S. asylum system as needed and as appropriate.
2: Thank you. And uh, we'll just hand this back. Uh, once again, thank you to all our panelists. I want to thank you all for bringing in your insights. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, Moderating with you for some of you. This is the second time I've moderated you, David, which has been it's always fun to to have these conversations. So, um, with that, I'll hand it back to our hosts.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. And thank you, panelists. This was a really um just a stirring and provocative conversation. We're so grateful for your time and for being with us. In terms of what you can do as a result of having listened to today's conversation, of course, you can continue to learn and share Of course, you can also learn about the Episcopal Church's public advocacy ministry. You can visit Episcopalchurch.org forward slash OGR and you can sign up for the Episcopal Public Policy Network and take action on migration policy issues, as well as many other issues on which the Episcopal church takes action. You can serve. Um, There are many opportunities to get involved with Episcopal Migration Ministries and our local resettlement affiliates. So if you have any questions or want to learn how to connect, please do contact us at emmwebinars at episcopalchurch.org. And finally, of course, you can give to support this work. Um, For Episcopal Migration Ministries, you can donate online at episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give. You can also text EMM to 41444 to do a gift by text. And I wanna thank you all again for being with us today. Thank you panelists so very much for your generosity with your time and sharing all that you did. To check out uh, the information from the hosts that participated in today's webinar, again, you can visit episcopalmigrationministries.org or advocacy.episcopalchurch.org. Thank you all so much. Blessings on this Thursday and we'll see you at our next webinar. Thank you and goodbye.
1: Listeners, thank you for joining us for today's episode. For more resources and opportunities from Episcopal Migration Ministries, be sure to visit episcopalmigrationministries.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are, EMM Refugees. Support the Ministry of Welcome by making a gift to Episcopal Migration Ministries.
0: With your help, we will continue to welcome and resettle refugees to communities across the country, offer support to asylum seekers, and create community for all of our immigrant siblings. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text Hometown to 91999. Our theme song composer is Abraham Awinda Akondo. Find his music at AbrahamAwinda.BandCamp.com.
1: Until next time, peace be with you and all those you consider home.
6: How can it be my parents' country, I'm origin When all my life, this foreign land is all I've known So where is home?